Welcome to Mighty Buildings Podcast. Each episode features architects, home builders, and industry professionals sharing their experiences, failures, and successes. At the end of each episode, we'll dive into how Mighty Buildings relates to the conversation through our use of 3D printing, robotics, and automation. I'm your host, Sam Rubin, the Chief Sustainability Officer and one of the four co-founders here at Mighty Buildings. It is my distinct pleasure today to welcome uh, Chris Coulter from uh, Globescan, um, which is a global leader in sustainability. And well, frankly, you don't want to hear it from me. Chris, welcome. And what is Globescan? Uh, Globescan. Hi, Sam, first of all. And I, I love Mighty Buildings, the name, the the concept, the work you guys do. It's, it's so fantastic. It feels very superhero-ish in some capacity. Um, yeah, Globescan is a, um, a research and insight advisory firm. We've been around since 1987. So we've been doing uh, research and strategy work for clients for, um, you know, for 30 plus years, trying to help orient around how do we manage um, sustainable development and how do we harness views and perspectives of average people, stakeholders, experts, and, and really help mobilize the kind of strategies that uh, get us to a future that we all want. That, that's, that's wonderful. And I'm really curious, what first inspired you to uh, kind of come up with this? Because you guys have been doing this since pretty, pretty early on in the sustainability movement. Well, and, and our founder, Doug Miller, who started the firm, um, it's an interesting story where, where he was involved in NGOs and nonprofit, very much on conservation and, and some of the work that Mighty Buildings is involved in on, on how do we actually begin to live differently and change our buildings and our infrastructure and um, and get social marketing underway to get people to, you know, to, to act differently in, in simple ways, but important ways. And he was a, a very um, excited about data and using data. And so became started by doing polling on environmental issues just in Canada originally. And, um, and then about a decade later, he launched the first ongoing global public opinion poll on the environment called the International Environmental Monitor in 1997. And from there, um, he then kind of grew the company, and I started in '98, I think. And and what was appealing to it is was just this um, application of social science to this big issue of sustainable development, where mm -hmm. technology is really critical, innovation is critical, the regulatory environment is critical, but also getting people to live differently and act differently and respond differently is fundamental to, to what we're doing. So we've been playing in the behavior change space for a long time and trying to understand and ascertain expectations. And what um, using that as a technique has been, I think, quite powerful in nudging businesses, NGOs, and uh, governmental organizations towards a more sustainable development mindset and footing. That's awesome. And that's such, such important work. I mean, uh, when prior to Mighty Buildings, when I was working as a sustainability consultant, like obviously a lot of it was focused on building envelope and everything. But one of my favorite parts is exactly what you're talking about. It's like, how do we use social science and behavioral change? I mean, like, what what's it look like to move a garbage can 10 feet? How does that impact behavior? Right. Like little things like that. And then like, how do you frame it? So you, so they can sell it up to, your C, to their C-suite and actually make that change. So that type of work is so, so incredibly important. And tough too. I mean, and I think that yeah. that's the kind of the origin of the company. And then we moved into you know, more, more traditional consulting work around materiality, strategy development, reputation management, all, all kinds of things that, that are there. But then recently we found, and we've maintained a thread of doing consumer research and 
public opinion engagement all through. But but now it's become even more important. And I think this last mile of sustainability is how do we get 8 billion people to live differently? And not an easy thing yeah. to do. And something that we've been all working and chipping away at for, for decades without really a lot of success. You know, it's, we're, we're, we're like herding cats. We, we are yeah. uh, very difficult to move at scale. But I, I think there has been progress in understanding different elements of behavioral science and econo- behavioral economics and what works and what doesn't and how to motivate people. And we're getting more and more, I think, voices and, and um, experiences to try and engage different you know, different folks, wherever they are, to see and understand that we've got to change. And actually change is exciting and positive. Yeah. And this is the, the, new, the, new, the new good life that we're, we're moving towards. Yeah, and I think as we're looking across the board at different industries, we're seeing more and more solutions coming to the fore that make that change easy and make doing the right thing the easy choice. Because I think, I mean, maybe, like personally, that's something I see as a key to really getting us where we need to be globally is how, because humans are creatures of convenience. I mean, even the, the most well-meaning of us and the most well-intentioned of us, I mean, like I admittedly definitely end up having a lot more single serving uh, plastic than I would like, because frankly, I'm busy and I order takeout way more than I should. But yeah, I also know better, and so, but, but that's the easy choice. And so I uh, yeah. love what you guys are doing to help kind of shift that and help people see better ways. Yeah, and, and we, do, we do need that help. So one of the interesting insights from, <clears throat> from lots of our, our, our work of like why – because there's, there's a gap, right, between all of us understanding, yeah, why we're – climate's an increasingly uh, recognized and uh, a critical concern for the public across the world. We're, all of us see that the future generations need a different approach. We all deeply understand, no matter where we live – or our background, that the way we're approaching life is really not sustainable. So, but we don't know how to change necessarily in right. many ways. And and I think the the challenge, of course, has been that it's not just a bit of information or a little bit of a different option or a small nudge. I mean, those things help, but they're not critical. That the big picture in in a lot of our research has been people are ra- we're rational. So we are mm-hmm. not going to radically change our our lifestyle if we think that business isn't changing, if we think that government's not committed and changing, if we don't see our neighbor doing something, if we don't see another big country like China also changing. I mean, all of these things become part of the free rider um, yep. rational approach. And and so what we do need to do, I think, going forward is just can, you know, create the irresistibility about the future of what things look like. So everyone knows, yes, I will have to um, change my uh, my behavior in micro ways and big ways, because this is inevitable. This is the way it's going. And, and I see the signals from business and brands and government and my neighbor and my you know school teacher all saying the same thing. And, and that systemic context is where you get this massive, I think, inflection point of, of behavior change. Otherwise, it's little drips and drops and, and we're fighting over the next, a 5% increase in, right. in many ways. Oh, I love that phrase, irresistibility of the future. That's a great concept. And it, you can see it now with COVID and the conversations on, on vaccinations, right? This is, this is a, you know, va- getting a vaccine is a very simple thing. Living in a sustainable life is a hugely complex, it's yeah. multi it's from where you live, how you move, what you eat, what you do. So it's everything. But so just the vaccine itself, which, which um, it's not about information because people are aware. It is around trying to create this context now. And we see it with, with governments trying to be clever in their approaches. It's nudging and making it, um, everyone understands that that is the future. We cannot stop that train. That's where we're going. And that's fundamental. So if you do want to go to a pub or go to a baseball game or, you know, go to a restaurant, 
go to school, go to work, you're going to get vaccinated. <laughs> and so it becomes this almost, you know, fait accompli that people say, all right, that's, and we need to do that with sustainability with, as you said, this optimism. And, and I think one of the, the interesting analogies we played with is that in as much fantastic work people have, you know, thousands of people have done over the, over the decades on sustainable development, we, one of the big mistakes I think we collectively made was that we were misunderstanding what we were we were showcasing and telling people and it mm-hmm. it became much more about what not to do and how it's going to be difficult and not about something that's delicious and irresistible like a beach and and i think analogy of going on a vacation is that you know you sell a vacation by showing people the palm trees and the the drinks with umbrellas in it and the beautiful landscape and people want to go there um, what we have done collectively is not talked about the beach, but you're going on a vacation, but you're going to get vaccinated for, you're going to line up in an airport, you're going to sit in a tin can for 12 hours. And we didn't complete the circle by saying, this is what it's going to be. And, and that magnet and that draw has been collectively at a broad level missing. And I think we're finally, collect, you know, at a, at a scaled level, understand that this is what's, um, what, what people need to see. Gotcha. It's almost like tapping into that idea uh, that people actually enjoy the anticipation of a vacation more than the vacation itself, because it's because you have that thing you're looking forward to. And so, yeah, I totally agree. We need to create, make sure they see that future and kind of can see themselves in it and understand why there may be some difficulties, but why it's going to be worthwhile. Totally. Exactly. The payoff. Like, like it's, yeah. we all want to do stuff because this is exciting and this is what, what things should be rather than it's going to be a hassle. God, I don't know how to do it. Jeez, it sounds like a drag. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. And loving this conversation. But I would love, I think our listeners would love to hear a bit kind of about your journey and kind of what brought you into sustainability and, and into this space. Um, relatively random. So I um, I studied science at first, biology, psychology, and I wanted to be a doctor. And then I sort of had a bit of a crisis of, of a sense of like as you do when you're 22 years old, an existential view of what matters, what's important. what, And so then I, I took a year off and traveled a bit and, and came back to school. And then I went into a different realm of international development, which was a fantastic second undergrad degree of understanding how mm-hmm. you, know, you deal with address poverty. Um, and the, I realized that was a little bit flaky. So I did a did a graduate degree in, in, in political economy to try and strengthen some teeth. And, and, and I ended up working in the Canadian government for a little bit at, at CETA, which is the equivalent of USAID, and was in the Africa division. And all of a sudden, I, one day I saw a poster that said volunteer in Ukraine. And my mother's Ukrainian, in Africa. so I always wanted to go. And, and so I went and volunteered, and I was placed in this little organic um, organization, a nonprofit called Democratic Initiatives Foundation that was doing public opinion polling, Mm-hmm. civil society and media training, all to try and build after independence, uh, a more democratic, thoughtful kind of, you know, cultural discourse that was going on. So that was my introduction to, to public opinion research and polling. It was fascinating doing polls on NATO back then. And I came back to Canada and um, stumbled upon this little company that was doing some interesting stuff around sustainable development, which kind of tied all these recent experiences together. And yeah, got 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 lucky in finding a, a niche that uh, I found very rewarding and enjoyable. That's awesome. And I, I, 
I can totally see how that background would feed into what you're doing now. I mean, it's kind of starting with the science and having the ability to kind of understand the reality of what's happening, then going international development and looking in kind of how do you talk to people? How do you connect with different cultures and really elevate these ideas? And then that opportunity to kind of have experienced that in multiple locations. I can, yeah, that's, 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 that's amazing. But, um, but totally, totally unplanned. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the best journeys often are, yeah, um, that's true. at least in my experience. Um, but kind of along those lines, uh, one of the things we love highlighting on this is uh, times when uh, things might have seemed challenging or where kind of there's something happened or you took your career took a turn that at the time you kind of felt like it was taking you in the wrong direction. But now kind of sitting where you are, you look back on and realize it actually may have opened up opportunities or or turned out or had a flip side that you that you can see now, but that wasn't so obvious then. Uh, just because obviously as entrepreneurs and as people really taking on these big challenges in the world, uh, there's going to, you're going to run into obstacles. But kind of one of the things we love highlighting is that every challenge is an opportunity. It just, you have to look at it differently and reframe it. And so curious how that may have played out for you. Well, I think for me, it's probably less interesting than I think the broader sustainability uh, history, which I think is really interesting that, that we've, we've learned um, that these kind of crises or challenges are really, you know, core to catalytic behavior change at an organizational level in particular. Um, I, I wrote a book a couple of years ago called All In with um, David Grayson, who's a great academic of the UK, and Mark Lee, who's a... Um, a consultant out of California, and we old friends for a long time. But but we we were looking at a, a whole range of companies that all of a sudden were recognized by stakeholders as leading companies, and the likes of Unilever and Patagonia and IKEA and Natura out of Brazil and Interface out of Georgia, and um, a whole range of companies over the years have been evolving, right? Like you know what good looked like thirty years ago, which were the companies like Shell and BP and Dow Chemical, uh, changed to look different. You know, another generation was Nike and GE and then Walmart. And now we're in a different generation of leadership where the Unilevers and the Patagonias and Ikeas are really driving it forward. In looking at all of those companies over 30 years uh, or 20, 20 years of, of, um, of history of what made leadership look like, all of them had a, some sort of transformational event in many ways. So, so the, the negative issue of a reputation crisis, a, um, a provocateur coming from the board or outside calling the company you know, to, to mm -hmm. pull up its bootstraps, um, all of those things were required for all these companies to some sort of you know, shift around in many ways. And I think that that's the important piece that we need to embrace those you know, crises, challenges, um, things that perplex us that we don't know solutions like that that is the moment of transformation yeah. where an organization says all right we got to do something different and that difference almost always now because of the way the world is and the way things are moving and the way science tells us going is in the direction of sustainability so i think um i think that it builds courage it builds uh, a, a new way a new mindset to look at things differently to shake things up and once that occurs then the organization gets out of its inertia and into a much more exciting footing yeah, no, I definitely, I think that that really highlights kind of the idea that we, we get in our path and sometimes it takes a shock to the system to make us realize that, that, that we're kind of stuck in a rut and that it may be taking us in a direction we're, we're not intending to go. Totally. Uh, I think totally. That's, that's, a, that's a really, really great point. And I'm, I mean, obviously more and more we're seeing companies taking that stand because they see it's the right thing or because they're kind of really recognizing it rather than having it forced in them. Although some like Exxon, as we, as we saw recently, uh, still are kind of having to be pulled there, kind of kicking and screaming, as it were. Yeah, it's incre it's incredible. I mean, and, and this is the other. I think you know what's what's transpired in sustainability in the last twenty four months is, I think, 
unprecedented in the 40 years that this thing called sustainable development has mm-hmm. existed. So it's, 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 an, it's an incredible moment. It's hard to see it when we're inside it. But I think the, the Exxon example and that, that um, so-called Black Wednesday in May for the three oil companies, Chevron, yeah. Shell, and Exxon, where all of them were disrupted, again, you know, through mostly shareholder activism, but also some governmental and, and NGO activism, it's extraordinary. I mean, and and those 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 companies need that. Like like that. That's the they need the external perspective and constraints to truly um, break free because the inertia of the of the of the existing system is such that it's almost impossible. Even when and met many goodwill people who understand it and get it. Um, and there's just too many other constraints that make it tough. So you have to embrace those moments where someone, um, you know. Puts new board members on your board and to ch- to shake things up, and that's a fan. That Exxon will be a better company because oh, hundred percent. Sh- I mean, yeah. Then the reason that I think the reason they won isn't necessarily because oh we're not doing sustainability. It's because you're not reacting to a business threat. It, it actually wasn't a, it, because ever all of a sudden their shareholders were yeah we need to be focused on sustainability. I mean some of them yes, but it was more like this is an existential threat to our business model, and you are doing nothing. And yeah. so it really came back to the business case, um, and that's yeah. that's that's I think kind of one of the interesting things is that sustainability makes good business if you can if you know how to frame it. Totally, and 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 the framing often is just looking a little bit beyond the quarter or the fiscal year. You know what? Yeah. What, once you get to a three year, even a three year time frame, it all clicks in and makes complete sense. If you're looking at the next quarter, you know you can find ways to wiggle out of it, and it's not critical. We could put it off, but. But once you just stretch a little bit, it's, it makes all the difference, which is why it's been so, I think, catalytic for organizations like BlackRock and other pension funds and institutional investors to begin to ask questions about the long term and to reward companies and to probe them, to give them permission to think about the long term has been very, very powerful rather than a short term ism, which has been the rife yeah. and the problem in, in hypercapitalism. Yeah, I mean, I remember what it's been almost 20 years since you had uh, um, Warren Buffett and all those other guys writing that letter about a need for return to a focus on long-term profitability versus short-term. Um, and, but, and yet we're, yeah. So I think that's the fact that that's, they made that from a business case, not a sustainability case. And yet, and that now we're saying that same thing here is really, I think really illuminating. Yeah. And, and I think now it is becoming more explicitly about a sustainability case be, because the, the risks are so existential and obvious and the science is so strong and clear it's um you know you really have to have your head in the sand not to see some of the yeah well and, and and as dire as it was I think that's one of the really things that makes me happy I hate to use that word but that that I think is a real positive from the latest IPCC report is that it's just like nope this is like we're there it's like there's no yeah. it's no longer we're like we are living this now and we need to act now um, and given that and we're gonna because we're gonna run out of time soon yeah. I would love to hear kind of given where we are, what some of what you're seeing, because obviously you work with B-Lab, you work with uh, BSR, Canada BSR, and all these other, like, what are some of the new ideas or new things that you're seeing in the pipeline that you think are, are really get you excited or kind of help give you hope for the future? Well, I think the, I think this idea of a multi-stakeholder model is, is true and, and taking ground. And I think, I think that's in that, and that whole network effect of these multi-stakeholders working together, like the scientific community being much more effective in communicating the true science, mm-hmm. um, that that's changed dramatically. I mean, science, scientists generally have done a very poor job in communicating some of these elements, but they've gotten much better and, right. and recognize it as a obligation to, to do so. And so that's transformed the other important part of the ecosystem, which is the financial community investors who are all about numbers and they don't, you know, 
necessarily put a, a, a value preference, but wow, okay, so there's a disruption here and you know, carbon regulations coming, carbon bubbles exists. What are we going to do to try yeah. and address these these fundamental risks on on climate? Yeah. Calculation externalities. Yeah, exactly. So so that it's that that piece is driven. And then um, you have civil society taking up another notch, you know, in response to the same science, more emotively, more viscerally. And you have organizations like Extinction Rebellion and, Fr and Greta's Fridays for the Future and on the equality side, Black Lives Matter and all these elements through COVID, people still being on the ground and pissed off and you know wanting justice in some ways. And then you've got businesses in the middle responding to this with customers and regulations coming. And so this watch, this kind of watch of, of, of winding in the same direction for the very first time is what's extraordinary. Before there was always sand in the gears and one would go this way and someone would go that way, but all of these different stakeholder yeah. audiences are moving this in direction. So a multi-stakeholder focused organization that sees how these things are connected, again, it makes sustainable business irresistible. And so that's very exciting. From an issue perspective, you know, it comes down to two, you know, two really big lumps of stuff. It's a climate and nature agenda and the inequality agenda. And both of them are gorillas. Like mm -hmm. they're, they're around for a long time. And I would argue they're, they're inter inextricably intertwined. I mean, it's the social versus environmental sustainability, which really, I mean, if, as, as I'm, you guys, I'm sure approach it similarly, it's about people, plan and profit imbalance. Yeah, and 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 the just transition through those things is is mm -hmm. the, the real issue, and that's where we uh, need to get good at it. Otherwise, we have this ongoing negative, you know, populism and polarization that's transpiring across so many different countries in response to some of these things. And um, so, justice is required, and fairness is required as we do the transition. Um, yet, I think that's that those two things are still being looked at, or managed, or um, engaged as silos, partly because they're both of them so complex. They have different yeah. interests, skill sets, but we do need to find ways to merge them. Well, I think that goes back to where, uh, and unfortunately, I have to, we're going to have to wrap this up shortly, but what we were saying about multi-stakeholder engagement. I think one of the things that I, gets me excited and that you've been speaking to is we're starting to see a more diverse group of people in the room in those conversations. Um, it's not just your board members of Exxon. It's all of a sudden you've got your environmental justice people stepping into the room. You've got representatives from marginalized communities more and more uh, being able to have their voices heard. Um, still not enough in many cases, but those, there's, that's starting to be a part of the conversation. So I, I think those two concepts together really yeah, are, are incredible. And I, I would love to continue this for a couple couple more hours, but that's, that's all the time we got, unfortunately. So thank you again. Guest today has been Chris Coulter, CEO of Globescan. So, so wonderful to have you. Great to meet you, Sam. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you.